0: Good morning. Hey, we're in 1 Samuel 23 as we consider the life of David in the wilderness, in the desert, from uh, chapter 21 to 31. I hope you'll be reading in 1 Samuel 21 to 31. Next week we're going to be in chapter 24, and that is a really cool chapter So you'll want to make sure you uh, spend a little time there and acquaint yourself with uh, 1 Samuel 24. But today we're in 1 Samuel 23 as we continue in our series, Learning to Sing in the Desert. And the scope of what we're going to be looking at is a continuation of last week, but particularly focused on verses 7 through 29. But before we do that, it was uh, in this very service, in this very worship service last week, that a friend of mine drew this picture of uh, David in the desert. Yeah, that looks very bleak. Very barren and bleak. And the animals there look wild and vicious. There's nothing happy about this except the notes of a song. Yes, there is color. And I thought, boy, that's a, that's a great uh, picture. So I wanted to share it with all of you. Thank you, Tobin. That was a, that was a good deal. Keep drawing. I always wanted to be an artist. Well, in 1 Samuel 23, we really see the heart of David that we saw in Psalm 54, verses 1 through 7. We looked at it, we read it last week, and David expressed his heart. We kind of get the interior, we get the inside look at what's going on inside of David as he expresses himself in Psalm 54, but we also get a sense of the spirit of David, kind of his spiritual lifestyle. The way he lives all the time from the Psalms of David. And we can carry that with us into 1 Samuel 23. You'll recall that that Psalm 54 actually has the heading, or superscription, making reference to the time that the Ziphites, where David is hanging out, he's in the desert of Ziph, the wilderness of Ziph. Those words desert and wilderness are used synonymously. He's in the wilderness of Ziph, and the people of Ziph let Saul know that David's in the area. And Saul is really grateful because he's eager to catch and to kill David. He sees David as a big threat to his kingship, which will be important to keep in mind as you read the next chapter and you get a view of the way David looks at Saul. But the Ziphites then are sent by Saul to be on the search for David. And he writes that psalm when there are these groups of Ziphites. They're not aliens. You don't have to picture them with horns or feelers or anything, but they're just named for the territory of Ziph. And the Ziphites, they're sending out men in groups hunting for David in the territory. And David expresses his heart in Psalm 54, which we looked at last week. But the heart of it is Psalm 54.3, which is projected for you on the screen behind me. God is my helper. The Lord is behind all that upholds my life. David sees the Lord at work in his life in all kinds of ways. Not just things that seem good, but even things that are found in the desert things that are associated with the desert. And not just a physical wilderness, but a spiritual wilderness as well when you're going through difficult times. Even when someone leans on the Lord all the time, they can have moments of great discouragement, moments of dryness, moments of doubt. It doesn't mean that they aren't spiritual. It doesn't mean that they aren't looking to the Lord. Sometimes our life has difficulty catching up with new experiences. Things that confront us in a fresh and stark and even startling way. And it can challenge us spiritually. And even when we bring it before the Lord, our own spirit, so to speak, you know, our heart, uh, our feelings have difficulty sometimes catching up with where we want to be before the Lord. And that can be a time of desert experience in our lives. Well, last week we saw that David's life is characterized by seeking and expecting God's help. Expecting and accepting God's help. And accepting and recognizing God's help even in that kind listen I'm speaking from experience here and I'm telling you you can be the person kind of person that's attuned to seeking God and his help and expecting his help and even accepting his help and even recognizing his help but in the midst of that something can strike or come up as in David's case, the betrayal of people that he thought would be grateful. Perhaps at difficult times, missing people in his life, feeling the pressures of responsibility for the 400 and their families, and now the 600. Verse, I think, 13, it swells to 600 men and family members as well that are following David, he feels a tremendous responsibility to protect and look out for them. I mean, have you ever cried on behalf of another person? Of course you have. Or you felt the great weight and discouragement. Sometimes it's almost harder on us than the people that we're concerned about. Sometimes, as a child, we're weighed down by some of the responsibilities that we're exposed to that our parents are not able to handle, and we're concerned for them or fearful for them as well as ourselves. There's all kinds of things that can interrupt or, so to speak, surprise a life that is generally dedicated to the Lord. It doesn't mean an either-or. And David is doing all those things, but there's got to be moments, even as Psalm 54 shows us, there are moments when David is afraid, or David is a little discouraged. And it's into these experiences, and into his life, that God does bring his help. And we can be prepared for it, just as David was, by seeking and expecting, expecting and accepting, and accepting and recognizing. Let's look at verses 16 through 18, because one of the ways that God sends help comes in the form of Jonathan. And I'd like us to read that together. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, And then verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish, and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home." Now that may not be the way we would talk to a friend, or a friend would talk to us, but there are some things in this experience that I want us to appreciate about the kind of friend Jonathan was and the kind of help that such a friend gives when such a friend gives the kind of help that comes from the Lord and that helps another to sing in the desert. First of all, we're told that Jonathan strengthened his hand, that is David's hand, in God. In other words, he puts power into the hand of David. The hand was an expression for for power. And his hand was weak, and Jonathan strengthened it, so we could say he put power into his hand. In our language, we use the word encouragement. We breathe Courage. We put courage into another. That's encouragement. And we can never do a better job of encouraging another person than when we encourage them in God. Jonathan helps David to be the best version of David he can be. And he does it by mirroring God's purpose for, hate, for David. And he accents it, or strengthens it even more, by his own perf- personal belief and support. In other words, Jonathan strengthens David by getting David to focus on the Lord. You'll never find greater strength than when you focus on the Lord. People that have confessed to me really a hard, difficult time feel weak. They have no strength. They're so discouraged. It's it's like they have tremendous weight on their shoulders and their legs are very wobbly and can hardly hold them up. And so often, what they experience also with that is they are at the end of a gradual decline in which they've quit reading the Word, quit thinking about what God's Word has to say to their heart. You need to hear from the Lord. You can't acknowledge Him and think about Him and think the right thoughts about Him if you're doing it in a vacuum. Well, and we really never are, are in a vacuum. We're actually in the midst of a great sea of social media and sounds and thoughts and beliefs that are very far from the encouragement of the Lord. Jonathan strengthens David by focusing him on the Lord. He doesn't seek to encourage him just through sympathy or kind words or through human friendship. He strengthens David by giving him reasons to rely on God. Every one of us knows of reasons to rely on God. And we can give those reasons to others, especially when we rely on God. And look at how powerfully Jonathan does that. Because Jonathan reminds David of God's anointing, and he submits himself to that anointing. In other words, he says, you're going to be king, not me. Now, I'll tell you, if someone told me, listen, John, you've got to put your faith in God. You have reason to rely on God and it involved that very person, that my reliance would mean that he wouldn't be king instead? And he's saying, listen, this is what God has for you? You can take that to the bank. I mean, that's authentic stuff. He's saying it at his own expense because he believes it that much. He's supporting it with his own life. Now, our encouragement to others may not be as dramatic as that, But there are ways that we can encourage others out of our own experience, our own life story, the ways in which God has helped us. And we can pledge our support based on our own faith in the Lord to help and encourage another. And that's exactly what Jonathan has done. And it makes a big difference. How much, given the betrayal that David has experienced in this chapter, Remember, in the opening verses of chapter twenty-three, David and four hundred men decide that when they hear the news that the that Keilah, a town, a city there, is being assaulted by the Philistines, it's really Saul's job to help, but Saul is unavailable, and so David and his men go down and help and rescue the people of Keilah. But then, in turn, they open their gates to Saul, and they betray David, and then the people of Ziph. Now, if you were told you're going to be king, and you start to exercise appropriately a little of that kingship by helping people that you don't need to help, you use your strength and power to serve those people, just like you might help a friend at school or help a neighbor. Go out of your way. Put yourself on the line for them. David did that, and then those people turned on him. Jonathan's help was tremendously powerful in its encouragement to him at a time like that, and to hear him affirm, he who was Next in line to become king is the son of Saul. And he says, no, I see God in this. You're supposed to be king. And I want you to know I'm so good with that, I'm going to be second to you in serving what the Lord wants to do under your kingship. I'm going to serve under you. Wow, that's tremendous. I hope you can kind of take that in and make application in your own life, because that's a powerful principle at work there. Even though he couldn't see the signs of what God was doing, because David was still in those difficult straits. He wasn't sitting there with a purple robe or crown on his head. No, he was in the desert. And yet this man believed what God could do in his life. When you believe what God can do for others... You're encouraging them. You're putting power into their hearts because of your faith in the Lord, and that helps them to believe as they ought. And then they even affirm it with a covenant. Note the words in the last of those three verses, before the Lord, before the Lord. They acknowledge God's presence and His steadfast love as the basis of their covenant with a sense of God's very presence. You know, that doesn't happen easily in our society. It's a true believer that initiates that awareness. You think about that for a moment. Some of you have been around great people of faith. They cause you to become aware of the Lord in a world in which that's constantly drowned out ignored, and suppressed. You need to be the kind of person that has faith and awareness of God's presence, His action, His power, and His reality. And people should be able to feed off of that or experience that off of you. That's the kind of presence that Jonathan invoked when he was talking to David and encouraging him. That's a powerful thing. And I'll bet you know that of that experience. Sometimes, when somebody just initiates an awareness of God, in the midst of experiences in which you've been in with other Christians, and it just... but all of a sudden, this person brings the Lord into it. Or says, let's pray or let's realize God is here, even now. I love that kind of stuff. That's no different than what David and Jonathan were about. That's no different than what the disciples were about that carried on in the power of the Spirit after Jesus was ascended, the work of Christ. And we can do that too. I was... uh, wanting us to appreciate in the light of Jonathan that we can be that friend who helps another to sing in the desert. And I really believe that if we seek and expect God's help and we expect and accept God's help and accept and recognize, in other words, seek his help, expect it, accept it, and recognize it. You'll be aware of the Lord's presence in your life in a way that will invoke his presence, and you'll be the kind of person that can be a Jonathan to others, that helps others to sing in the desert. Let me... talk to us just really practically about seeking and expecting God's help. I think we're all pretty good at seeking the Lord. I mean, especially in prayer. Especially in the desert. When things are tough, we turn to Him, we pray. But sometimes we're not good at expecting. What we believe when we Pray is what we should believe after we pray. You know, we need to carry that with us. That's just as important as what we believe when we pray is to believe what we believe after we pray. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. If you have your New Testament at hand... You can turn to it. Two verses that if you've never memorized these words, you should really memorize them, and I would encourage you. You could do it in no time, and it'll be a lifelong source of encouragement and guidance to you. It's very easy uh, to remember the opening words. Do not be anxious for anything, Paul says. Now just listen to that. Don't be anxious For even one thing. Now, I know the way I'm translating it for you is maybe a little different than your English, but that's exactly what the Greek says that Paul wrote that letter in. Do not be anxious for even one thing. And then he says, and by the way, can you think of a greater plea to confidence in the Lord than that? And then he says, Make your requests, and he mentions prayer and supplications. Make your requests known to the Lord. Isn't that an appeal for expecting great things from God? I mean, to, to you know, say, Lord, I need help. Even when we're feeling kind of embarrassed of ourselves for the weak need, kind of weakened condition that we feel when... We're experiencing something tough. Paul says, that's okay. You should have confidence in the Lord. Bring your your prayers. Bring your supplications to him. And then a third thing that we should note in verses 6 and 7 is he says, when you make these requests, when you're seeking the Lord in prayer and supplication, he says, do it with thanksgiving. Do it with thanksgiving. Now that is the, that's the key. I mean, all those parts are important, but that really is the key. Because so often we make our prayers and supplications with discouragement. And with despair. And we're dispirited. And we're down. And Paul says, but do it with thanksgiving. That is the ultimate expectation. That is the ultimate initiation of hope, is when you can give thanks right in the midst of your difficulties. And there's another thing that it does. It doesn't only create an expectation. It also widens Our line of sight. You know, God does not always answer your prayers and mine exactly as we word them, and as exactly as we imagine we would like God to answer our prayer. And if we think God can only answer our need and our prayer one way, what if he decides to do something just slightly different? We may not even see it at all. We might even dismiss or skip some help God sends our way, not even seeing it as help. The desert was where God forged the faith of his people, Israel, and taught them how to depend upon him. And that has been my experience in each desert experience. Shelley and I, we got married when we were 20 and 19, 1974. And we waited eight years to have any children. We had our first child when I was uh, 28 and she was 27. And when our child was two, uh, we were both working in Modesto when and I I was teaching and she was teaching. We'd grown up there. Oh, we had all kinds of connections. She had more than me. I was just tagging along in some ways. But uh, those were exciting times. We'd bought our first little house, and then uh, we were in a position to buy another used house uh, by selling that and we got it all painted up and we'd saved we lived on a on very little for many years and uh, and so we'd finally uh, we purchased a little furniture and painted it up and everything and uh, it was at that time that the call of God came to me in the form of a phone call I didn't realize for sure it was the call of God, but I got a phone call. I, we had some friends over on a Friday night. I ducked into um, our son's room where it was dark, and he was sleeping, and I was whispering, and it was my pastor, and he said, there's a church over in South San Francisco, and they need a pastor. We'd like you to at least go over and preach this coming Sunday. And I'd like you to prayerfully consider whether God wants you to go there. And so for the next four weeks... We prayed, and I was going Sunday to Sunday and speaking. That's the place, you know, where they introduced me as Pastor Enema. And if you don't know what that is, um, but, you know, I wasn't really charmed by that. I did lean over to my friend and say perhaps we should sing Cleanse Me, which is a great hymn, but... (laughs) It was not a place I wanted to go. I was teaching for Fresno Pacific College in their Biblical uh, and Religious Studies department. Shelley was teaching uh, nursing in their ROP program there in the city. And that was not on our radar. But we honestly thought we should prayerfully and genuinely consider that. And we went. We went. And we were there ten years. And during those 10 years, see, we were in a church of 3,500 people and on the grow, and with a staff of 34 pastors. I was an intern and I'll tell you, if I fell on my nose because of some irresponsibility, I would have never hit the ground in that kind of system. There were so many people. There was a network of help, and and we helped each other and served the Lord shoulder to shoulder. But now, I was in a church all by myself. Fifty people. We grew it to 150, which is pretty good. But I found that moving out from under the umbrella of all that... <laughs> large church into a small church where there were fifty people and then sixty and seventy and more that were depending on you and there was nobody to help you with your responsibilities. Every decision you made became crucial. Issues of every responsibility within the church and so it was a real cauldron of fire for me and I gotta tell you I was very alone. And there were some very big decisions and hardships, at least on my radar, they were the biggest decisions I'd ever made in my life, and they weren't just mine to suffer if I blew it or made the wrong decision. So I became very aware of this seek and expect, expect and accept, and accept and recognize God's help because I was leaning and looking for it every day of my life. And even though I had the support of a wonderful wife and other people in the church, there are a lot of things that you just have to face and deal with alone. Somebody said uh, to grow up, you make promises and then you do the painful work of fulfilling those promises. And that's what I was doing. A promise to God and a promise to his people to serve him faithfully. And sometimes that was very hard work. And I learned how to rely on God and to rely on his word. Sometimes the things that we banter around as, we call it theology or beliefs, it's okay, everybody, as long as everybody believes it, we move with it. But when you're out on your own, and this is where you need to be in a little part of your relationship with God, you have to have that part of yourself that serves him because you are willing to follow him if nobody else does. And if you're going to follow him if nobody else does, then you have to take his word to heart because you've got no other compass to direct you. And you've got to learn to rely on his word and to believe in it when nobody else will believe in it. You need to learn the skills of faith. Please do this for yourself. Learn the skills of faith. Become self-conscious about growing in your relationship. Get earnest about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Ask someone you admire in the faith to disciple you. And if that person doesn't want to admit to you that that they don't know how to disciple you, then that person, have them come see me, and I'll help you disciple that person. We can all, we're all able to disciple at some level. We should be thinking about people that we want to invest our lives in, to encourage, to be a Jonathan to. This is important stuff. This is the way you grow up in Christ. So expect God's help. Oh. Secondly, expect and accept God's help. Without expectation, it's easy to miss and accept God, God's help that comes our way. Sometimes we just, we didn't expect it, and so we miss it because we're not aware and we're not accepting of the help that comes our way. David accepts Jonathan's help, and that seems like a no-brainer to us. It seems obvious. But I've known people to dismiss help, sincere, genuine help, and it's because their heart is in the grip of pessimism and discouragement. How much better to live expectantly than in discouragement? And sometimes we jump into that discouragement. I don't know if it's kind of pride. It's like, this is only happening to me. I'm the only victim of this experience. The whole world should have pity on me. But I want you to know that's not the way it is. And positive anything is better than negative nothing. Winston Churchill said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. And I'll tell you, our culture is becoming extremely pessimistic. Have you gone to the comments section of a blog? Have you noticed that the comments sections are being closed? At first it was, let's be interactive, let's talk to one another. And some of you on social media can you experience how negative and pessimistic and bitter and biting and hurtful people can be. Disciples of Jesus Christ should not be like that. Not just be, they just shouldn't. I know I'm being bold about that. But we should be constructive, encouraging, and positive We have every reason to be in Jesus Christ. And especially, is it true that the optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty in God? Now, it's true. If you expect the worst, it's true. You'll never be disappointed. But remember this. No hardship, no hardship is so bad that whining about it will not make it worse. Pessimists and grumblers may be right, but do you know who changes the world? Optimists, people who are positive and constructive, people who can see opportunity in difficulty, And that's what we ought to be in Jesus Christ. No one on earth has greater reason, greater purpose, greater support to be positive than you and me in Jesus Christ. No one. Everyone that everyone else is following will be in the grave someday. The one we're following triumphed over death. That counts for something. If it doesn't count for something, then you need to go and check your pulse in Christ, because that should really make a difference on a regular basis. We of all people, the Lord's children, have reason to expect, to accept, and to recognize God's help, and to see his grace and love pulsing everywhere. Accept and recognize God's help. David credits God with using the message of the Philistines to divert Saul from seeking him when he had him cornered and all of his followers. And he named that rock the Rock of Escape. He saw a miracle in that. You're told in 23, chapter 23, verse 25, that they hid behind a rock. That was a big rock. But when that was the only place to hide and Saul was on the other side and about to turn the corner a messenger approached and said, Saul, we're being attacked. Come, help us. And they turned back and went to help and fight the Philistines and gave David a chance to escape. And David called that the rock of escape. He saw a miracle in that experience. It said there are two ways to live your life. One... Is though nothing is a miracle, and the other, as though everything is a miracle. I'd rather be the second of the two. Because like David in Psalm 54, verse 3, he can confess, God is behind all the help and support of my life. And so he is yours, because he is the creator who sustains life in this world. There is, listen, when you begin to see God at work in your lives and give him credit, just as James said, every good and perfect gift comes from above, then you'll begin to experience real joy in your life. Be that friend who helps another to sing in the desert. If we seek and expect and accept and recognize God's help, we'll see God everywhere, and he will open our eyes to the great things he has in store. After 10 years, um, it was starting in about year nine in South San Francisco, uh, I really felt a prompting. I I felt like I... you know, generally, when, when God would move me from one place to another, it would be what I would call a call, you know. God called. He said, this is what I want you to consider. And we would go through all the steps of evaluating and prayerfully consider that, and we would go where God was pointing us. But in about the ninth year, I started having this prompting that God was saying, it's, it's time to move. It's time to go because you've taken the church as far as you can take it. And now it's time for somebody else to step in and take it beyond what you could do. And there were other things, your giftings. A big chunk of me was not being exercised or expressed um, in the pastorate there, and so um, I went through a period of real inner struggle and in prayer, privately, and, and it was a desert time, even within the, my desert experience, so to speak. Um, and I, I, toward the end of that, when I was growing in this conviction that God wanted us to leave, I sent out resumes to churches and also to schools, because I had kind of an academic side I'd been teaching, and also a pastoring side, because I'd been pastoring. I got some opportunities, but they seemed like jobs and not calls, you know. I wasn't looking for a paycheck. I was looking for God's next great work in in my life that he had for me. And so uh, I began to contact the regional directors of, say, the Evangelical Free Churches, which take a big chunk of California and have supervision, or the Conservative Baptists uh, of America. They had a big chunk in that area, and I had meetings with their regional directors. And one of them, I drove over the hill, if you know the Bay Area, the Peninsula, over to the coast, and I went down to Pacifica to meet the regional director very early in the morning, and we had breakfast together, and I had sent him my resume in advance. That kind of tells you, a resume tells the person what you're kind of, you're about. And um, he said, John, I just got to get to the bottom line. He says, uh, I've looked at your resume, et cetera, et cetera, but he says, look, if you haven't grown a church from 100 to 1,000 Probably no churches are going to be interested in you. And I, I, my face didn't scrunch up or anything. I didn't sock him. Um, I stayed really nice and pleasant. I wasn't really upset at him. I got in the car and I was driving back up the highway uh, to go home and, uh, I was doing what the psalmists do, speaking candidly to the Lord. We do have a precedent in the psalms. And I said, Lord, I feel betrayed. We, you called us here, and we've served you faithfully for almost ten years now. We left everything. We left our jobs. We lo- left our friends. Um, I mean, we left a lot. And we had nothing here. No job security, uh, couldn't afford a house for 10 years. We've lived in a manse or a parsonage, a a house that the church provides. Schooling, everything's different, And, and we knew that. We knew that. We didn't go there for job advancement. We knew we were going for one reason only. There was no other incentive in our hearts. And that was because we were convinced the Lord was calling us to that church to help that people and serve in that area. But now at the end of ten years, and I didn't have one regret. I said, Lord, I have not one regret to bring before you. And this is, is this, you know, the, the, the finish for me here? You know? Is this the final word from this Person that is kind of a pastor of pastors, I was pretty discouraged. I went home, I worked in the office that day and did the kind of pastoral things that I did on that particular kind of day. But in the evening, uh, I had to take up some of my studies and stuff for a long evening, and I was feeling a little discouraged. Well, I was feeling a lot discouraged. In fact, I was feeling really downright angry. And I had been praying and praying, and I picked up the phone, and I called um, a a pretty good acquaintance. We were in classes together. He was a fellow pastor. I knew him when he was pastoring. Now he was working for a a school. I just called him up. I felt really embarrassed to bring kind of my dirty laundry out, and I I just said, David. Some of you remember David Eckman. He's spoken here. I, I said, David, I know this calls out of the blue, and, and I'm a little embarrassed to talk to you about this, but I said, here's what happened. And I got to that point where the, the regional director said, John, if, you know, unless you've grown a church from 100 to 1,000, nobody's going to really be interested. And David started laughing over the... I mean, really laughing loud. This is like crazy laughing, like roll on your belly laughing and holding your stomach laughing. And I was a little, and I said, why are you laughing? And he said, John, he said, I'm laughing because, he said, you don't see yourself the way God sees you. He says, you're like an eight-cylinder engine in a Volkswagen body. Now, I don't know what that would be like, but that was somewhat encouraging to me. And here's the thing. I never got that specific calling, which was unusual. But after we we, we put a plan in... place to help the church for the 18 months after, after we left. It was a beautiful parting. I still love that church. God did more for us in that church. In fact, if it weren't for my time at that church and during those 10 years, I would not be here, and I wouldn't have been the pastor that I am here. It really prepared me for some of the specific and unique challenges of Grace Community Church when I, when I was called here. But not even two weeks after we left, We were unpacking boxes. The phone rang. It was Western Seminary. They had a part-time job for me to begin building a campus up in Sacramento while I did my schooling and finished my PhD. And within three weeks of that, I found myself up in Portland at the President's table in the conference room as a part of the President's leadership team of the seminary in Oregon and in Washington and two in California. And the guy who said that to me, he was an adjunct for Western Seminary. When I was academic dean, he reported to me. Now, how's that for a turnaround? Will you stand? Sometimes God has bigger things in store for you than you can ever imagine. I'm going to pray. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning and you want to... Meet him in the intimacy of prayer and ask him to be your Lord and Savior and to accept what he's done for you on the cross and in the resurrection, the legacy that he offers you through faith. If you want to start that journey with the rest of us, we invite you to come as we pray. I'm going to be up here along with elders and pastors. We invite you to come whether you want to pray to receive Jesus or to intercede and pray for a friend or for yourself. Let's praise the Lord. Father, thank you for your great love and goodness. You are our helper. You're behind every good thing, every bit of help and support. Give us eyes to see that and to know your joy and expectation in all we do that we might be a friend who's able to help others sing in the desert. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.